0: Well hi everyone and welcome to the Canadian Journalism Foundation's J Talks Live webcast series. I'm Anna Maria Tremonti, host of this virtual series. It was launched during COVID and uh, we're going to have another whole series starting now. This J Talks speaker series explores pressing media issues. This season our theme is the evolution of journalism and today we'll talk about the newsroom challenges faced by Black indigenous, and people of color, and the biases in media coverage. A conversation resurrected in the aftermath of the police killing in the US of George Floyd, which has ignited a reckoning across every facet of our society. Thanks to those of you who sent questions in advance, some of which we'll cover in our discussion. And uh, as you know, you can continue to send some questions in. And before we get started, the CJF would like to thank the generosity of the JTalk series sponsor, BMO Financial Group, as well as in-kind supporters, CPAC and Cision. And a few helpful notes about this podcast. uh, As we begin, if your internet quality is poor, you can click on the click here to switch stream button to view at a lower bandwidth the video quality will decrease but the audio quality will stay strong now if you're having technical issues that you can't deal with click on the request help button or bubble on the bottom right corner of the webcast page and your request will be emailed back to the email address address that you provided We are extending this webcast beyond the usual 40 minutes to allow for more discussion and more audience questions around these important issues. I'll chat with our guests first, before I may incorporate some of your questions in. Some of you are already channeling the questions I was going to ask, um, but so we'll try to get as much of that in as possible, but submit your questions at any time using the questions tab. And of course, if you wanna tweet about this, the hashtag is JTalks Live. So joining me today is Nanaba Duncan, host of CBC Radio One's podcast playlist and also Ontario weekend's morning show Fresh Air. Nanaba is currently on leave. She is a William Southam Journalism Fellow at the University of Toronto's Massey College, where she is studying the experiences of racialized and women leaders in Canadian media. Karen K. Ho is a global finance and economics reporter for the New York-based Quartz, a digital business news publication. And Angela Starrett is a journalist with CBC Vancouver and a member of the Gitson Nation. She is also an adjunct professor at UBC's School of Journalism. Hello and welcome to the three of you. Thank you for joining us for this discussion today. Thanks for having us. Hi. Thrilled to be here. Uh, this is a really um, important and necessary moment in time to examine and change what has sort of become the status quo in journalism and to rethink uh, what I want to talk to you about today is how, you know, how we rethink what we cover, how we re- define news, how we assign news, the sources we consult, the rigor we follow, and maybe confront what we have uh, or what so many have ignored or glossed over or did not consider or did not even see. That you have been seeing and you couldn't get others to see. Uh, and I want to, you know, have this conversation, both for what's going on inside Newsrooms and also what's going on in the field in coverage. So let's start maybe briefly with each of you telling us, first of all, how you are processing both journalistically and personally how you're processing the incidents, the events and the discussions of the last several months. Um, and maybe, Angela, let's start with you on that. Sure. Amasa, um, good day. I just want to, first
1: of all, acknowledge the unceded territories of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh that I am um, on today. Um, and yeah, it's it's been a really long journey, um, I feel like, to get to where we're even having a conversation about the media's... Uh, the problems within our newsrooms, um, within the way that we tell stories, um, within the way that we reflect on the stories, within the way that we understand bias from somewhat of a colonial perspective. I feel like what happened is in in May, um, after George Floyd's death, horrific death, and and so many that followed, um, of Indigenous and uh, people of colour, Black people in Canada, that we were having this really strong, rigorous discussion in our newsrooms. And it was sort of like this this reckoning and this moment of, hey, now it's time to look inward. And now it is time to navel gaze. Now it is time to say, what are we doing wrong here? And how can we change it? And let's start listening to those voices. Um, but I've been talking to people about this recently and I feel like that was almost then, that was May, June and July. And now we're sort of back to normalcy and so, keeping that conversation going has been challenging. It's been a, a long road in terms of how our leadership responds to stories, how other journalists respond respond to criticism, and how we recognize and how we do a better job by addressing that where we are today. That we haven't we haven't done a good job. We haven't um, we've we've our coverage has often been laden with excuses of why we don't do stories or why we why we've done them in the ways that we have from the certain perspectives so it's been a it's been a really long journey for myself as an indigenous Gixan woman to get to the place where we are now just to have these conversations and to feel like i have allies in the newsroom and and that's incredible to have people who i can say Can you respond to that email or can you take this on? Because it's hard as, you know, as the lone in First Nations voice, you know, often in the newsroom to constantly be taking this on, it's, it's exhausting. And you get to the point where, you know, we're looking at different things going on across Canada and you just, you just can't, you can't be the person who's taking all the, how do you pronounce this name? What's the context here? Can you tell me about the historical um, viewpoint of that and it, it gets it gets tough. And so um, we're here. And we have a long ways to go. Um, but I'm I'm grateful for the people who are listening and who have taken that step up to say, you know, you don't have to do all the work we can we can listen, but we can also advocate for your being, <laughs> your presence, and for Indigenous stories to be told in the, the 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 rigorous, the investigative, the accurate, the sensitive way that all other stories are told.
0: You're both uh, nodding, Karen and Nanaba. So Nanaba, why don't you go next on how you've been processing this time? Um, badly, to be
2: honest with you. Um, George Floyd died, and then um, it was everywhere in the news. And then, um, and then I had to do a show called Fresh Air for the weekend, weekend morning, um, and I had to, uh, uh, I had to make a concerted effort to uh, decide how I was going to respond to the moment because. Inwardly I was responding with tears and lack of sleep. And um so I had to go in on, on a Saturday morning and I remember thinking, what am I like what am I what am I doing? Because I didn't feel like I was talking to my community I didn't feel like I was doing what I should like representing my community somehow and so the way that I thought about it on a Saturday was okay I have this job because I have this energy and uh, my energy for this show is light and I can be a breath of fresh air so that's what I'll do today. That's what I'll do in this moment. And so I was able to do that. And then the feelings got heavier. And the way that I thought that I could address it was by talking to Black people who were listening, but also to everyone else. And the way that I did that was, I basically just came up with a message. Something that would tell people, something is happening here. You think it's going on in the States, but we are feeling it. We're feeling it. And so the only way that I could talk about that was to, talk, to, to say, you know, that you know a community is in pain when we're checking in on each other. So the way that I was managing processing was other other black people other black journalists i would just like text them or message them um the the black fist and a heart and they did the same thing back there was no what's this for we all knew everyone knew do you know what i'm saying so um uh beyond the tears um I processed it by engaging in the conversations that I was asked to engage in. So when uh, the president of CBC wanted to speak to a number of uh, black employees, um, and I was asked likely because I was the co-chair of Diversify, our employee resource group for uh, people of color, I, I, I came to the meeting. Um, and I'll talk about more about what happened, but it, it, to will let Karen talk now, but um, ultimately, it, it, it's been hard, and then the news about yesterday. I don't know how I'm supposed to um, uh, uh, stay out of it, and and I don't think that I'm a bad journalist for having these feelings. But I have felt like I'm a bad journalist for having these feelings.
0: We're going to talk about that after. I want to. I want to talk more about that. But but yes, go ahead, Karen.
3: I think it's especially challenging because the things that make This particular panel, really vigilant and comprehensive about our work, also makes us vulnerable to being overwhelmed right now because we are hyper aware in our diligence, in our understanding, in our deep level of empathy, our ability to understand the perspectives both of our communities and what are the gaps in reporting, and see like we are extra vulnerable to levels of trauma in not only the extent in which we understand the scope of the problem for each of our communities, like not only am I, it feels like a, even like a uh, multi-level version of what was happening the first months after the Me Too stories in the fall of uh, 2016, start 2017, when it felt like every day there was a new update that was just overwhelming and filled with really, really graphic detail to the extent that everyone had suspected that there was a serious problem, but the layers in which uh, people had been enabled to be really horrific. And so the thing that is difficult is the three of us come from very specific backgrounds and experiences, but our ability to empathize with what it is like, especially to be a woman uh, who has been underestimated or undervalued throughout much of your career, and how that's reflected in our work. On top of that, it's, uh, I think, the real understanding based on our careers as journalists about the people that we're reporting on and how their experiences can be our own or have been our own. So, right now, just like what uh, Nana was saying, like I have a very hyper real understanding of the likelihood that i'll experience anti-chinese or anti-asian racism in canada and in the united states like that is a reality of as soon as i step outside of where i live and that is traumatic to mentally prepare and try to compartmentalize while doing the work that highlights things like i cover finance and economics so i am I have a real numerical understanding regarding things like graduation rates from universities or you know how often um promotions are denied or you know the the employment and earnings gaps you know like i understand on a very statistical basis how Mm -hmm. things are stacked against us and i then have to compartmentalize it to be normal productive at my job Mm -hmm. even when all of these things are going on and that is very very It's like uh, we are burdened with extra sacks of potatoes when everyone else is running up the hill. And I think that's like having to explain that additional challenge in the way that the real cost, not only in, in terms of things like there are real costs in terms of all of us Uh, the work that the unpaid work that we do to connect to other people, to, you know, mentor other people coming up behind us, to connect to our peers who are going through the same challenges, Mm -hmm. or also explaining to people, to people who don't have these experiences and understand the additional unpaid challenges of doing so, like, like, like how much I spend on therapy every (laughs) year, or, you know, like, uh, anti-anxiety medications, or, or even um, uh, things like personal safety, you know, starting in March, early March, before even the pandemic was declared, I had a cold and I stopped going out because I knew that if I coughed or sneezed on the subway, it would be interpreted very differently, especially with my historical understanding of SARS in Canada and the United States. And what I had already reported on about the pandemic in places like Chinatown in New York City or in Canada. And so that, you know, that that has professional repercussions, it has personal repercussions, and and but journalism is constantly told, you know, this is a deadline, serious business, it's unrelenting, you know, like your credit card bills and your rent don't care about your intersectional identity. And so the challenge is it, it quite honestly, it's incredibly lonely, especially during a pandemic when we're not allowed to gather and mourn, especially if we knew people who had suffered or died from covid 19 or had suffered uh, repercussions of racism and uh persistent systemic discrimination you know we can't even gather to just talk to each other and and hug each other and say that you're not alone and that is really something that is that makes it extra difficult right now and so um there's a lot of a group texting, <laughs> group texting right now is very, very important, especially for journalists of color. But there is something still, uh, and and also the places that we would normally gather at, say like uh, um, employment resource groups or um, journalism conferences, specifically for. Indigenous or Black or Asian or Hispanic journalists have been taken away, you know, those spaces, what what um, a sociologist named Elijah Anderson defines as like a non-white space, you know, that, psycholo- that physical psychological safety and that feeling is, you know, once a year you gather and you really are reaffirmed in why you're doing this work and why it's important. So the challenge is explaining that additional burden and that it's important that um, that it has real physical and uh, you know impacts and productivity impacts and that doesn't make us bad journalists. it means that we are human beings who are responding in a reasonable way to our real understanding and our firsthand understanding of what's going on because I, I'm gonna jump in there because yeah. you're just it's a bad the bad journalist thing I want to explore
0: that with the three of you um, <laughs> because, um, um i don't think that makes you a bad journalist at all i think it makes you a better journalist to to recognize the, because the of uh, the, the to recognize your own feelings and the feelings in the community that is your community and to bring that to the table to a newsroom that doesn't make you a bad journalist and we have to talk about why why anyone would think that would and that gets into these questions of so-called objectivity versus just shutting things down. So, um, and you know, one of our questions, I'll tell you right now that that somebody wrote wrote that in, Uh, it was uh, Joyce Matthews said, should a journalist include the journalist's personal opinion in a news story? But I think there's a, thank you for that question, uh, Joyce, but I think as well that, you know, it's got to do with who you are as a journalist and what you bring to the table makes you a better journalist. So talk Mm -hmm. to me a little bit about, Obviously, this needs to change. If you're, if you are, and Angela, I don't know if you feel the same way, but if if you think somehow this makes you a bad journalist to have feelings, no, it does not.
2: I mean, I agree with you, but I I I was just being honest about the feelings, and I think it's because um, when you first, so when I first got to CBC, my goal was to just get on a show, man, get on. So I was pitching everywhere. I was doing what I needed to do, but the doing what you need to do really meant to emulate for me at the time was to emulate what I saw. Right. And to emulate what I saw means to do it how everyone else is doing. It never said at no point, did anyone say, bring your perspective, what's happening in the Ganyin community, what's happening in different black communities. No, it was never that. So I guess what I'm saying is that uh, I learned that there was sort of a lack of invitation of, who, of these other parts of myself. And I mean, if you want to call that the Kool-Aid, I was drinking it every day, you know? And I think part of the feelings that I've had lately um, is anger because I've realized, oh my God, I just didn't bring my whole self for so long. That's kind of sad. And I can tell that I didn't because I see other journalists who are doing it. And I'm like, I never would have done that because I would have thought that that wouldn't have been accepted. And maybe I'm wrong, but that was what I thought. And so um, when it comes to, and, and I think that I have mom- I've had moments where I tried to bring myself um, maybe in pitching. And there are so many different ways that an idea is sort of shot down. And so it, it, it screws with your mind. It makes you wonder whether your way of thinking is wrong. So perhaps that's where a person could get the idea that they're not a good journalist. But I agree,
1: it doesn't, that doesn't mean that
2: you're, you are, it doesn't mean that you're a bad journalist.
0: Angela, you're about to say something.
1: Yeah, just, just on the note about the idea of impartiality, when you have a a nation of Canada that was founded upon colonization, it was founded upon racial violence against yourself, and and that's the baseline for our impartiality, as I was saying before. This is our norm. You know, we don't we don't sign off. Angela Staret, CBC News, Unceded Territories of the Musqueam. Right, it's Vancouver, and we don't we don't question colonization. There's reports and reports and reports that I've looked at where uh, media outlets actually encourage um, the taking of Indigenous children, or for many many years. We didn't say survivors. We weren't allowed to say the term survivors when it came to residential school. We had to say students. Um, the way that we've framed our reporting and our worldview as journalists is from the, the base of neutrality, is colonization. So coming out and saying, I believe in decolonization, now I'm an activist, now I'm an advocate now i'm not a journalist i've crossed the line and i'm seen as one of those people and i can't tell you how many times i've faced that in my career by other journalists complaints um and i don't know how other people feel but as an indigenous journalist you're constantly fielding complaints from the public from other journalists um mainly those, the journalists and and from the public, about you being non-biased, about you putting your view in there because it's considered radical. I mean, even saying this is racist is considered radical. Even saying Black Lives Matter is radical, which is, it's like, it's unbelievably uh, fraught and problematic. And so I also hear like a lot of like what I consider dog whistle racism, like, oh, Angela, you're so passionate. And that's what you bring to the table is your passion and your care and your emotion. Never like, wow, you're in, you did all those FOIs on that story. You're an excellent investigative journalist. Um, so you hear those kinds of views, you see them and it, it's just like you're con- like Nenaba was saying, you're constantly like risk, like feeling like you're, Okay like I have to be a white person in this reality and in my story pitches I have to I have to white code this I have to come across everything that you do has to be somewhat from a colonial mind frame or mindset because if you don't you're an advocate or you're an advocate activist and so it's this constant navigating of how people are going to see you how people are going to see the stories and and like i said like i feel we were in this reckoning moment like okay let's let's use the words um anti-racism or racism let's call it what it is it's okay to say black lives matter on twitter all this stuff but i feel like now it's like okay we're in september we're relaunching our you know our regular our our normalcy and and it's hard and i knew this was going to happen when i saw that happening all the letters coming out from all these corporations all across Canada, I knew like, this is a letter and this is going to go on for a couple months. And then, and now we're back. And how do you, it's exhausting. It's exhausting to constantly be like, I'm here, I'm at the table. I have a perspective that will actually help you. will like, let you in and see what this world is about. Um, But also like explaining like, this is, you know, with the Mi'kmaq fishery, explaining the way that we're doing things is, again, like, fraught. And it's, I think, um, Karen, you were saying, it's like going up a hill with a huge sack of potatoes on all the time. And you're constantly, like, getting chipped away at. And it's it's hard. It's, it's um like, where... And, and for me, I do think the way that things have changed is in that time of reckoning, you had people saying you know, I'm actually going to be an ally and I will fight this battle for you. And we need that. We need people to say, I'm going to pick up this incredible anti-Black racism story, not incredible in that it's horrific, but we're going to take that on and we're going to showcase why this is important, why we believe this is a story to tell rather than, oh yeah, I don't even, I don't even think that's racism. So yeah, it's, there's small changes, but again, like, where we're at right now, with in terms of what is impartiality, what is balance, what is neutrality,
0: that needs to change. And well, that's going to come with more of our voices. You know, I, I, I'm really struck by that because that is that, that argument when somebody says you're biased. It's not that you're biased. You have a deeper understanding of an issue and its context. So you see the story that... that others aren't seeing. And so when you bring it up, that's not a bias, that's a a more educated view of what's going on around you. And more people need to listen to that.
3: Uh, Karen, I know you want to jump in. Go ahead. So you were leading up to it and and the word that I wanted to even use instead of educated is it's an expertise. It needs to be recognized as an expertise. The three of us have a firsthand understanding of the impact of colonialism and racism and discrimination both on ourselves and our communities and uh, the history of that and how it accumulates both in terms of trauma and economic uh, opportunity, you know, the lack of economic opportunities and our ability to participate in society in the same way that a lot of white people have been allowed to uh, through the accumulation of wealth and, uh, you know, uh, roles of power and uh, political influence. That's the real fundamental thing. What is recognized as bias and what is recognized as expertise and how those goalposts are constantly moved for people who are quite frankly on this panel. I'm always asking people to think about that in terms of, how they define it because once you interrogate it they realize that it it's an immutable thing and it changes constantly if Karen you... I
2: really like that framing <laughs> I like that framing of, of expertise because um I think that for many people they would come to us for ex- expertise for me anyway when it has to do with hip-hop or you know anything that might be seen as black uh, culturally yeah um somehow but um, when it comes to I guess more serious matters then the expertise may not be um, it may not be seen as expertise
3: but that's the thing is like I am constantly interrogating things that are considered white and mainstream and how they're considered expertise and not bias like in the United States like like the, when the Boston bombings happened, and all these journalists were talking about, like the schools that they went to in the Boston area, or their understandings of of the demographics. I was like, oh, why is that considered an expertise, and not the fact that you grew up in an affluent area of this like prominent metropolitan city in the United States? Like I'm always asking people that, or you know, I um, I had brought this up in terms of my expertise just about Asian culture, and but like what you were talking about, like the languages that I learned to speak or my understanding regarding immigration or even in terms of things like food and slang was only recognized as expertise because I wrote about a movie that featured Asian people Mm. but it was a competitive advantage and finally recognized as expertise because the people that I was competing with who didn't Mm. have that perspective it wasn't a bias it meant that when I was talking to the casting crew of this very particular and world-famous film, it meant that I could ask them questions after they had done several years of uh, interviews and press junkets that finally, literally days before the movie came out, no one had asked them that. Mm -hmm. And then it was finally recognized as expertise. uh, And it was important that also my editors recognized as expertise because it offered them exclusive details that no one else could get. Mm -hmm. The difference about that is, what we know from economics is that it's not often enough recognized with economic incentives. Like, I'm sure the three, the people on this panel have a much clearer understanding of the diversity regarding who we're sourcing on a day-to-day basis than a lot of people have ever thought. Like, I have a running tally of how many times I have interviewed um, a woman of color or a person of color, especially for my econ and finance stories. That's important to me. That it, and that's something I've done over several years. That is an expertise for me to think about the questions that I can ask them um, mm-hmm. and the markets that they are probably thinking about from their own background and the backgrounds of who they're considering. But that isn't given an economic incentive in terms of like performance reviews or promotions. And it's not disincentivized. Like if someone in finance or econ reporting only interviews middle-aged white people. Same thing with politics, same thing with music. That isn't economically disincentivized. And so mm. we just keep rewarding it over and over again. Mm. And when we talk about changes, like we really need to talk about like what are the things that people will move people to do these changes, including paying them or promoting them more based on their behaviors. The things that the 3 of us do intuitively. That we know benefit and re- better reflect our communities and the work that we want to do, but they're not seen as worth being recognized. Both in terms of, um, you know, like press releases, and also in terms of our promotions and how much we get paid. So I think that's like a real thing that I think about all the time, is just asking over and over again what is considered bias versus expertise when we talk about journalism mm-hmm. and even the the conversations right now even regarding like the three of us who are we allowed to be friends with and considered biased or activists because the thing is like right now we're finding out in the united states that a prominent npr reporter had had a multi-decade friendship with a supreme court justice and that was not seen as bias. That was seen as aiding in her expertise about covering a very complicated political situation. But if the three of us were in any way close friends over that long of a period uh, with someone who was advocating for economic inequality, like better economic equality for our specific racial groups, we would be seen as biased.
0: That's right. You would be called, oh, you're using the same person all the time and it's a bias. I just want to jump in, um, at Karen, and make the point as well when you do that, when you, when you source, when you source the people you're talking about, then it like, it, it shows up in your reporting, it shows up on air, it allows people in the audience to see people like themselves talking about these issues that it isn't, it, it, it broadens the issue. I mean, it, it makes news coverage what it's supposed to be. It covers, it covers a larger community. It's, mm-hmm. it, it is a good thing to mm-hmm. to be mm-hmm. doing that right and it's uh, i mean it's interesting to me that you you um you almost you feel like um you have to be uh, like a groundbreaker to do that when in fact that should be that should be what every newsroom um says you know are we doing this that should be yeah but you know what we should say
2: that there there are some there are some newsroom yes there are some and and i know there are some shows yes yes and and i just want to say that i know that for my show i was so grateful to um to end up with a producer who truly cared about that kind of stuff Um, she she brought stories to me that um i just did not get from the previous producer and it that that one thing, when she, when I think, I can't remember what it was, but when my producer came to me with an idea about um, Black women and mental health, I was just like, I I, I I don't know if I said this to her, but I was really like, oh my God, like, this is great. Like, she gets me. And she's been like that for a long time, but I didn't know her. And so it felt new to me. Do you know what I mean? And that's not cool that it felt new to me, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah.
0: So he also felt safe. on... This touches on another issue and that is like who is source now in the, in the conversation of the last several months um, there have been many calls to rethink how we quote and believe police and authority sources specifically in issues around um, you know the deaths of of Black, Indigenous, people of color in police custody and that kind of thing, but, it, but, but you can take it further in terms of the sources we use, the studies we look at. Um, uh, an example just recently, Paul Krugman in the New York Times was talking about, um, on, got, got excoriated over Twitter because he said that 9-11 wasn't so bad, it would have been worse under Trump. And then he doubled down with FBI statistics on hate crimes and right away other people jumped on and said, well, hang on, they're FBI statistics. You think how, this is not reflective of what people of color have been experiencing through 9-11 and, and, and Muslim people and others. And, and so how do, we, how do we take this rigor and, and take it further? Because that is also part of the status quo. Whose statistics you use, who you go to, who is believed without enough questions of why are you saying that? Who told you that? Did you see that?
1: Yeah, I think that's such an interesting question today. And we've had in our newsroom, like so many JSP questions around that, um, like who whose last call is it, right? So we can't do a story unless we have, and then now I'm speaking widely about um, all news outlets, but you know, you get a press release say from an indigenous community uh, uh, about uh, police violence or something against uh, uh, an indigenous teenager well the, the 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 you know you have to get the police's comment on that, or it's not a story so who's sort of who's making the story right and so that's been troublesome when you have an institution that's been or a number of institutions that have been um, racially racist and violent against bipoc people, and that's your that's your line. You must have this institution's perspective or it didn't happen, right? You must have um, this white person's perspective. So a story that I recently did, oh, you need to have, I mean, it, it wasn't said to me like this, but in my head because of, you know, what I've, what I've gone through, it was like, okay, I need to have these like five white witnesses who saw this race, this racism, so it can be called racism, so it can stand up to the scrutiny of the public or the other journalists. And I feel like that's problematic when you have an institution, say, when we were talking about the defund the police um, movement and the police you, if you don't have that comment from the police then it's not a story oh we just won't do it and that's 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 a problem we, you're, we, you're, you know, we sorry go on sorry
2: well i was just gonna say anna maria your question is about um it, it's a process question right like how you're talking about extending the rigor how do we extend that rigor to include these other perspectives we have to go back we have to go way back to how we are even um, learning to, (sighs) we really have to go back to when we were all in school and start taking classes from people like us. You know what I mean? What we're talking about is an undoing. Um, So if I'm to try and make this go forward, um, it goes back to the same question of all of us interrogating ourselves, interrogating what it is that we've been ingesting with media, interrogating how, what our first thoughts are when we see someone who looks different and actively changing that or trying to change how, how uh, the different kinds of people that we follow on Twitter. Um, it all comes back to what we are doing with ourselves.
0: That's just one idea, though. Well, you know, um, I have a whole bunch of questions, and so I want to keep on going. Before I get to questions, though, I want to um, raise one other thing. The other day in talking to you guys as we prepared for this, I used a uh, Word, and Nanaba, um, you called me on it, and you really made me think, and I I, I felt bad, but I felt smarter. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, but um, I called this, I was talking about this is a time to really look and change, but I said this Is an exciting time and you called me on that word yeah
2: tell our audience why well um my experience in all of this is that in all of this call for change the only people who say it's exciting are people who are are not people of color Mm. and i think it's it's a lot easier to look at the situation that way because what you see is an opportunity for us to change. So it it might seem exciting for us. I mean, the rest of us are just exhausted. We don't see it as exciting, really. We see it as like, well, damn, yeah, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. like uh, it's like when your rights are finally coming to you. And so I can say that um, it's certainly a time where we can start to start to look at being celebratory when things start to happen, but I just had to be honest with you in that moment. And I, like, I, I, it's not an exciting, it's not exciting. Mm. Like that, you know what I'm saying? Like
0: I'm not oh, like, I do, hey, I do. Oh my God, change. that's not what it's like, you know? It's, no, it's, and I apologize for you. No, that no, no, that no, 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 no. No, no, I it's, think I should, like, you know, like I learned, you know, well, it's, it's, it was it's a good
2: not really about you apologizing. It's about the fact that you are hearing it. And that's what I appreciate the most. It's, it's that you're like, oh yeah exciting. This is like, this is like if, um, I don't even know how to describe it. You know, I I just think of uh, if women started getting their rights, you know, it's not like it's an exciting, for the women, they're not, you know what, I don't know,
0: I wasn't there. But I think you understand what I'm saying. I do, I do. And I'm going to go to some questions. Um, So this comes from Deanna Chang, What's a recent memorable moment that made you go? Is this uphill battle worth it? And she's asking for a recent memorable moment that said yes, but you get to choose whether it's yes or not. Who wants to start?
1: I I I will I will say something. Um I will say that. Um, I've faced a lot of racism from the public from other journalists um, a lot like these are serious (laughs) things that are exhausting and where you're crying for days and um, I've experienced a lot of racial violence um, sometimes really brutal And it's been a lot of conversations, but it's been a lot of... I've had two producers who have listened, and they've actually listened. And you know that they've listened because they're not just saying, I get it, I get it, this is A, B, and C, and D, but they're doing something. So when they see anything, they go, I get that, I identify that, and I'm going to do something. And it might, I was thinking before, like, oh, it sounds like like I just say, I'm thinking, I'm saying, you know, it's great that white people are speaking our, on our behalf now. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that it's such exhausting work and you're. it's like bullets in the chest, arrows in the back. And I'm saying arrows in the back for lateral violence and bullets in the chest for anti-indigenous racism. And to have people who say, not only do I get it, but I'm going to bat for you. When this happens, I'm not going to let you be on the receiving end of this anymore. I'm going to, and you see it and they're doing it. And you're just like, you can breathe for a minute. You can, you can go, okay, I can, you know, I can just do my story. Hey, I just get to be a journalist for today. You know, I'm not just combating racism all freaking day. I get to just do my job, you know, and that's a win. And that's, sad but that is a win for me and that i think it's a small part of this is that's what it's going to take is for allies to say we will address this for you and do our job as we should Mm -hmm. karen you're nodding
3: go ahead it's one of those things that actually gives me hope is is like the the work because i think there is a there's a feeling for a long time to use another metaphor that we have all felt like we have been drowning for a long time. And instead of being finally told, instead of being told, oh, you should get better at swimming, or we need to have a committee discussion about if we can give you a life raft. Finally, people are like, we're gonna just, we're not, we're gonna like throw you the life raft and come out and rescue you and then help you recover once you get on land." And that is a very distinct distinction in this moment. And and it's not like, it's very clear because we've had these discussions for so many years the people who have been in this industry you can tell pretty quickly who is going to do the work who's going to take on the emotional and professional burden and stick their necks out and put their careers you know to really say this is important and we cannot continue this ongoing pattern of our staff at many levels who are journalists of color to walk out. We can't just bring them in and then have them drown mm. over and over again. And I think mm. that is the, the real recognition that it is a collective responsibility, not just on the ERG again, like the employee resource group <laughs> to suggest the ways to change. Like I think is the real thing that is distinctive and that I'm starting to notice because, and also, uh, you know, not just unpaid consultation work from the three of us to figure out what to do next. Like really people saying, oh, okay, the, the resources or the articles and the instructions on the solutions already exist. We just need to put them in place, sometimes at very little cost. So I think that's the thing, but I, like Angela was saying, I really, uh, you know, I worry about, especially with the US election, which will, you know, take a lot of attention, both sides of the border what the momentum will be and saying that this cannot be a lower priority because people are still trying to keep the lights on or they need to redirect their attention and energy onto covering the issues of the day. Like, I really think that's important because that that has been the excuse that we've heard over and over again is that, oh, we're too focused on like making sure that we can still afford to keep people on or, you know, deal with funding issues or all this other stuff and that excuse can't exist anymore especially since the things that we the, the things that we care about a lot ha- are never going away like re- like like what happened with Beyonce taylor yesterday just highlighted it for a lot of people so i think that's 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 the thing i'm really looking for right now is is the planning and the real c- uh, continual effort that is often really frustrating and exhausting but taking that burden off of just people who look like us. Nanaba. Um The question is about a memorable moment, right? Yeah. Um,
0: I
2: had a really intense moment with someone at work and we were talking about racism and we were talking about um, uh, uh, objectivity. And while it was hard, I really felt heard. I really felt heard. And I felt like um, I I don't think that I don't think it ends there. I think there truly are people, at least at my place of work at CBC, who are who are really, really trying and leaders who are really trying. Um, Another thing that has been memorable for me. So I'm at school here. I'm at Massey College and 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 I'm here to do some research on um, the uh, the experience of racialized leaders in Canadian media. And when, um, what I have enjoyed uh, is that people are interested in my work. They're interested in what I will find. And that says a lot to me.
0: And we didn't really even touch on this yet, but um, that the leadership has to, has to reflect exactly what you're talking about as well. Mm-hmm. Does mm-hmm. It not. I mean, we need to see, um, yeah. you know, the three of you, or if you, if you choose that, you know, we need to see you in those positions mm-hmm. of decision making power, because it's, it's, it's how we assign and what we assign and mm. in the same way where you say that, you know, you're in a story meeting and no one hears your story, people need to be able to, people in those positions need to hear your story, like need to know. They have to, it.
2: And they and have to feel life. safe, ultimately, I think that if we have um, if we have more uh, leaders of color in Canadian media, I don't think that we would have that many situations where uh like a, a a black reporter would have to hear the N-word in the meeting. Like I just think that we would have an atmosphere that that everyone would understand that that's completely unacceptable in, in any case. You know what i mean but uh, what i want to say more about leadership is that my under what i foresee is that we're going to have a whole uh, like a legion potentially if, if if this is done right uh of of leaders in, in canadian media who are people of color and and what i foresee is that uh if, if we don't do it right there will be a problem And the problem will be that maybe people won't uh, listen to them or they won't feel supported. I think that we have to do that, right? That's kind of why I'm doing this work is because I wanna find out what is needed by the, for these leaders. And on top of that, what if we are now going to see different kinds of leadership? What will that mean? So um, uh, I also know that um, there may be some people considering like cluster hiring, if that happens, What happens to everyone else who, 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 who may think that these people are only coming in for, because they're people like that happens. And then you have the leader then thinking like, oh, am I only here for like, there's a, there's a whole um, basket
0: of issues to consider if we do that. Can I, can I just say, however, um, you know, as somebody who came in at, obviously a white woman, when I came into the business and I'm part of that cohort where there were suddenly a lot of women in newsrooms Yes, and, tell and some, that. well, and some people said, you know, oh, we're not going to listen to women and too bad that doesn't change it. And you know what, if somebody says, oh, they're only getting the job because they're women or whatever, you cannot back down because mm-hmm. somebody thinks that. That, of course, that change has to happen, and if that's the only criticism, too bad. And if people don't want, what happens now to people who don't listen to bosses, right? Like, if you don't want to, <laughs> if you don't want to listen to a boss of color because they are a person of color, well, I'm sorry, that's just not acceptable. And we do have, like, that's where institutions do have power, right? That's where institutions can step up and boss up and say, "No, you can't do that." I and, hope you're and, and right, so, and Maria,
2: I really hope that that's true. But I there's, I, you'll
0: forgive I, me. But you're not when guessed. I say that I'm not
2: entirely
0: hopeful. No, well, I, I don't I, know. You know. I respect. I respect the fact that you bring that up because of what you see and what, what is around you. I'm going to go to another question. This comes from Yuki Matsuno. This is an interesting twist on how we talk about this. How can your listeners, readers, and viewers help increase media and journalist diversity, equality, and inclusion? So, what's the responsibility or the opportunity to to force change amongst the audience?
1: I mean, what, one of the things that happened when we when we got metrics at the CBC when we could see who was reading the story, um, you could tell that there was a shift in public interest. You know, most mostly after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's uh, the report came out, you could see this shift in you know how many people were reading the story it's a small thing but um who you follow on twitter who you what types of articles you open and read who you interact with and i and i and i always say this and it's not like just get an indigenous friend and then you're cool but like i i have so many colleagues and literally all their friends are white journalists and you know i'm the only indigenous person that they know like on a personal level aside from all the people they interview and i mean one step you can do at least is follow lots of loud vocal indigenous people on twitter and i've actually seen there was a magazine conference that i hosted and there was this woman there and it was like you could tell the magazine used to be like just totally like very white focused and all of a sudden it was like filled with these incredible stories from BIPOC artists. And I was like, what happened? Like, how did you go from that? Because it was in a very short period of time too, it was like in a year. This was like, I think last year. And she said, I just started following like you, Alicia Elliott, like these people and this person. And I started building that analysis and realizing some of the issues. And I think it sounds like little, but I think it's actually pretty huge. If you're just following, you know, a bunch of white journalists who are maybe incredible, but you have like that's your scope of analysis and what's going on in the world. You're not going to learn. And reading those stories, um, for me, that's that's. It sounds small, but for me, it can be huge, and it can be really um, mind altering or um, shape shifting.
0: Anybody else got a thought on that? That's I, the I, answer for me. Yeah, 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 yeah.
3: yeah. I think um, yeah. I encourage people to diversify and really think about who are the voices like if you if you were working in media and your group photos before the pandemic didn't have people who looked like us like that's that's a thing too because then they're going to talk to you about different things that are going on the foods that they're eating um the issues that they care about this what they're reading right like a feed is not just also the faces and things that they're talking about it's also just like what are they reading and what are they commenting on the things that they're reading themselves um it's also about what isn't being reported right because we also critique what other things are being reported all the time and we talk about it it's a it's a big conversation Um, and then going back to. uh, The optimism I I mean I'm really optimistic, having seen what happened after Denise Balcosine took over Chatelaine and how quickly Mm. even what the imagery regarding the cover images and then that changed everything right because people were like you know, it was like the stories, who they were commissioning, and then there was a huge ripple effect. There's also like who she stepped up and she had built that network over a long time. You know, I had contributed a story uh, not long after she started taking over the magazine. And then that changes a lot of what we think of as like women's journalism or Canadian journalism and the resources that were put in. But going back to what Angela was saying, I, I really think it's also just about people realizing the, the work involved in allyship is being, instead of being defensive, saying I'm at a real position to learn and contribute in a meaningful way through my resources or my influence and who I amplify on Twitter, but also in terms of in my professional life. And I think that was the thing is moving past because quite often still we're encountering people who are still defensive, who, who say, oh, you know, like who take it as a personal attack. And we're just saying, this is a moment in which you can be part of the change because we can't do it alone. we need your resources and we need your position of power or influence and to also talk to your friends why it's not okay why you know you should be paying attention to the issues um, why you should care about what's going on among indigenous uh, fishermen right now or you know all these other issues why you should maybe talk to your family members uh, if they're saying, Racist things about the black community, like all of that stuff. I think that's a way that is a conversation in media organizations, but also at large. And um, I think that's the, that's the real thing right now. Um, but it's going to it's it's a long term work thing, and it it's a cumulative action. It can't just like like it can't be like an Instagram photo <laughs> and then you're done. <laughs>
0: no it's um it's it's the ongoing work well we're talking about real change here we're talking about the need for it and then real change requires ongoing care yeah and 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 attention
2: yeah yeah
0: it we're is. almost out of time anybody else who else wants to just um, jump in with a few more thoughts on what you're thinking right now hmm
1: One of the things I just wanted to say when it comes to, to leadership and when Nanaba was talking about, um, you know, all these people might come in and then people are going to start questioning, you know, are you a diversity hire? That happens now, right? That happens all the time. Now I hear that from peers and it's awful. And, um, you know, people got into this business for hundreds, a hundred years or so because they were white, because that was their network, because that's who they represented, right? That's That was where our standard was for so many years. And the other thing that I wanna say about leadership, because I think it's a huge important question, the discussions that people are having at the leadership level right now, is that you could be a diverse hire, you could be part Métis, but does that make you have Uh, a race analysis or will that make you go to bat for that lone First Nations woman who is really struggling to have indigenous voices heard and to not be erased and to not have her stories excused away and to be constantly being called biased because she's doing indigenous stories. And so that's something I think is really, really going to be critical for the next level is if we do see these cluster hires the leadership needs to step in also and sit and, and um, be that voice and, and, and talk about for, you know, a hundred years or whatever, it's been, you've got the job because you were white. Things are changing now. Our perspective is changing and that needs to be a cultural shift, a paradigm shift within our entire newsrooms. And people need to also say, if you're going to be racist, you don't belong here. Go I. there's the door mm-hmm. that needs to be our cultural shift. And that's, mm-hmm hard because people are not gonna like that because people aren't used to that so absolute
2: intolerance absolute intolerance we will not like it's just i agree with that part it's just not something that we deal with if that's how you are and and if it happens uh, in a certain way too many times that's it you're because then it does to me you're not a good journalist to me if you are racist (laughs)
0: We're gonna we're gonna have to end it right on that note. Thank you, all three of you, for 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 what you've offered and what you shared today. It really matters. Thank you. Thank you, Anna Maria.